Welcome to the Remarkable Retail Podcast, Season 5, Episode 15, presented by Marketile. I'm Michael LeBlanc. And I'm Steve Dennis. Second time we've been on the mic this week, Steve. Uh, yesterday, a pre-prep call with our upcoming session at NRF with Gretchen Gantz from the Container Store. Looking forward to that, right? Yeah, I think it's going to be super, super interesting. First of all, Container Store is, is, I think, truly a remarkable retailer. They've been doing a lot of interesting things to improve their performance of late. A little bit of a teaser. I'm going to preview some new material I'm starting to work on. Mm. More on that probably next season. But uh, yeah, I think it's going to be a great session. And we got a great, uh, great moderator right here. For those of you who are heading to NRF, Monday, January 16th at the Javits Center. So looking forward to that. And I guess we should also give a bit of a hint. We'll have someone else from Container Store on the show coming up very soon, right? Yeah, we've got uh, two exciting CEOs coming up. One from TCS, the Container Store, mm-hmm. and one from TSC, Tractor Supply. <laughs> I was so, confused, actually. It was all funny. about I was acronyms, man. Yeah. It was. I was looking at the spreadsheet, dude, right in my script. I'm like, did I have that right? Oh, did I? Oh, no, that's, that's right. Kind of a funny, a funny coincidence. Now, speaking of uh, interviews, in this episode, we're off to Europe to talk to Michael Klieger, CEO of My Teresa, which is a fascinating multi-brand online luxury retailer that actually, wait for it, makes money. What? Well, uh, but, but I, I do have to correct you when you say mm. we are off. Oh, that's true. It's not exactly true because yes. apparently uh, there is some rule about the conservation of Michaels. And <laughs> since I was a Steve, uh, my computer decided to shut down very awkwardly <laughs> about two minutes before the interview yeah. started. So yeah, listeners yeah. will be blessed with a Steve-free interview. <laughs> but I can assure them, having listened to it rather than participated in it, that's a great, a great conversation. And thank you very much for... Uh, persevering well a little bit of inside baseball i mean with particularly when we're interviewing ceos of public companies there's a lot of timing involved with quiet periods and when we can do it and, and of course getting someone with a time zone change so we just we decided not to try to move the date but just to go ahead with the interview so i, I guess why don't you just take the news for the rest of the half hour and then that will <laughs> right. balance the universe right here's <laughs> my here's my monologue <laughs> sit, sit down get a cup of coffee a cup of coffee and listen. Well, listen, um, all that being said, let's jump into the news. So uh, I guess a, a quick mention of um, some economic reports, the CPI, PPI reports, you know, what's going on. We see U.S. inflation ease slightly, but a little higher than expected. The market went crazy, up, down, and sideways. What's, what's your take on the latest news? Uh, I want to briefly mention this. I guess, you know, I don't want every week to be talking about inflation. <laughs> you know, that's obviously a hot topic. And I guess the broader point, and it's something that I get into in in my book, but I've been talking a lot about in my keynotes, is this idea of living in a so-called VUCA world, uh, Mm. which is an acronym, kind of comes out of military strategy for the world being volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And when I put Mm. that in the book, which I finished almost three years ago now in the first edition, I, I absolutely believe that was the case. I now see the world as even more, uh, mm-hmm. certainly more volatile. Uh, we could argue maybe about the other three parts of the acronym. And, and I think the broader point is, you know, we are in a period that is quite unusual on a lot of dimensions. And when you layer on top of that, the geopolitical risks, you know, whatever the hell Putin's going to do, as well as, you know, anything else that might emerge, you know, particularly in the U.S., very divisive 
politics. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I just think, you know, it, the, the message really, uh, and it's something we will actually will talk about in our NRF uh, talk is how to fundamentally be more agile, how to be able to uh, realize what you don't know and uh, be able to adapt quickly. So I, I just I think that's the theme we're going to be coming back to. I do feel a little good though that we um, when we did our trailer, and I know we got a little bit of uh, well, we got both positive comments in terms of it being funny, but yes. uh, other people were like, "Come on, you guys are so negative." But when we talked about you know buckling up, Buttercup. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think wow, <laughs> we're, we're more prescient uh, at that time than uh, than we thought. Breaking news. Well, it's breaking news today. We're recording this on Friday. By the time you're listening to this. Uh, it's kind of not old news, but well-known news. Our friend Lauren Thomas, now at Wall Street Journal, congratulations to Lauren if she's listening, confirms the deal is happening. Kroger is going to buy Albertsons in a $24.6 billion deal. What uh, what think you of this shakeup in the grocery space? Well, this is huge news, as we say in New York. Yeah, second largest grocery company merging with the fourth largest player, I didn't realize I was looking at just some of the numbers, uh, mm. but you know, five thousand stores, over five thousand stores, I guess uh, together they would represent about sixteen percent of the total market. So, still a very fragmented business. Walmart being being the leader, but I think you know this is you know we talked about uh, our time at grocery shop. You know, groceries become kind of the most dynamic part of retail in the last year or two, and on a lot of fronts. And uh, I suspect this is. Driven by um, you know more cost synergies, perhaps trying to gird themselves from an increasing threat from Amazon. Um, but you know it's just a hyper competitive industry with a lot of things changing. So uh, whether this will get through antitrust, I think that's a big mm-hmm. big question. I think, mm-hmm. but uh, but pretty interesting. Well, it's pretty interesting because in the U.S. you know in Canada we've got basically four maybe five big players who who divide the market up. And two of those players are Walmart and Costco. So I think, you know, Amazon's not really considered a player in any meaningful way here in Canada. I mean, they've got, a, I don't know, 14 Whole Foods. And I think that's exactly the same today, current state in the U.S. I mean, it's interesting that they call out, you know, got to protect against Amazon. They're so far behind. Listen, it's a fascinating industry because it got a huge tailwind from the COVID era. With so many people shifted their consumption into grocery uh, and it, 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 from the outside in, it's an interesting merger because there's a lot of a ton of overlap. I mean, they've all got like dozens of brands that probably step on each other in interesting ways. But groceries are business of scale, right? They measure things in tonnage, and the more scale you have, the more buying power you have. It really allows them to compete with who really matters, which is you know Walmart, Target, Costco, Sam's. I mean, these are big, big, big players. Uh, so you know, I think uh, I think they're girding their way to a not too much of a fight in terms of consolidation, but I don't know. I've seen it go the other way, right? Staples tried to get together with uh, Office Depot, and and that got denied. And they said, "Listen, it's true, we're the two biggest, but you know, there's a lot of players who play in our category. Yeah, so it'll be yeah. super interesting to watch. Yeah, how plenty, plenty uh, of places to buy the stuff that they they both sell. Other, I don't know. Is this in the world of rumor? TikTok talking about a U.S. fulfillment center, which made me laugh because they're like they're taking on Amazon. I think Amazon's got a few more than one. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, uh, come on, come on. Come on. yeah i mean this story is sort of interesting uh you know on the one hand given how um strong tiktok is as a platform particularly with gen z customers i, I saw a couple stats about how much time the typical gen z uh person spends 
on the platform, uh, something like 50% of Gen Z product searches start on TikTok. So you can see the potential appeal of actually getting into a retail in a more significant way. I, I'm not sure I understand why they would necessarily have to own their own yeah. fulfillment facilities. Um, and this story is actually sourced based upon job postings. This is not an official mm-hmm. announcement as far as I've seen from TikTok. Yeah. So it's still sort of rumored, but there's a lot of evidence that they're they're looking to make a move. So, you know, sort of understandable in a way, but yeah, there, there's a long way to go before uh, they would be a significant retail player. But when you got that kind of traffic and that kind of engagement, you you could see why Mm -hmm. they want want to perhaps explore this in a more significant way. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Let's talk about uh, Neiman Marcus. Some good results, some good news coming out of uh, the Dallas-based former employer of yours. Uh, What say you about their latest results? Yeah, this this got actually, uh, because they're a private company, they don't share a lot about their financials, but uh, GVR, as their CEO's uh, apparently <laughs> nicknamed, because of mm. his more complicated uh, name, Shafri Van Ramaduk, I think. I oh. probably totally butchered that, but... Uh, but uh, yeah, they reported. Feel free, feel, free, uh, feel free for the Neiman Marcus folks to correct us in person yes. at the NRF show because I think he's speaking there. So we he love is. To get he him is. Yeah, Maybe we'll uh, we'll lure him on. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, they had uh, huge comp store increases. Now they're comparing to to pretty easy numbers, uh, but also reported strong EBITDA. What was interesting to me, and, and folks may know that that uh, between the time uh, I left. There were new private equity owners. Uh, then uh, eventually, during the heart of COVID, they filed, mm-hmm. Neiman Marcus filed for bankruptcy, closed mm-hmm. a bunch of stores. They've now gotten their debt down to a very manageable level, so that it's kind of a new day for them, and uh, they seem to be getting some momentum. But it was interesting to me, as far as I could tell, the sales level, first-party sales there are less, if you adjust for inflation, if are less than when I left in 2008. And while the EBITDA percentage is, is pretty healthy and greatly improved, if you just for inflation, it's still significantly less than the EBITDA that we had in 2008. So, you know, it's a little bit, bit of perspective. I mean, overall, they have not gained ground in the luxury market in the last 15 years, uh, but they are on a much, much better tra- trajectory than um than they had been so that that's encouraging you know but i think you know we'll we'll need another year or two to see if they're mm-hmm. they're really um back to kind of their old luster well let's talk about a canadian-based company that's a little bit under the radar screen but had uh, released their results and is really doing quite quite well aritzia what what do you think about aritzia well there's a couple reasons why i wanted to talk about this story one is i just think that aritzia is one of these brands well you know they're as you know more, far better than I do. They're, they're a major, major player in Canada, uh, but they're becoming a more significant player in the U.S. And I feel like they're kind of under the radar screen um, in a lot of ways because they're like, you know, close to $2 billion, I think, in, in sales. Very profitable. Beautiful stores on uh, Fifth Avenue and Soho. Like they're, yeah, they're great growth trajectory. Like, uh, so I partially just want to lift them up, I think, as a, as a great example of remarkable retail um, that perhaps doesn't get as much attention as they deserve. I also, and this was um, something I've, you know, we, I think it was, we've discussed a couple of times on the podcast, but I was I was kind of messing around on, on Twitter yesterday about, you know, trying to 
point out that DTC is not a new phenomenon and that they're actually some of the, the OGs of DTC, like Aritzia, like Duluth Trading Company, that are quite sizable and quite profitable, unlike many of the brands, you know, the Allbirds mm-hmm. of the world or whatever, they get all this attention that are quite a bit smaller and not necessarily anywhere close to making any money. And, you know, they didn't invent direct-to-consumer uh, you know, at all. So, uh, nor did nor did they perfect it. By the way, um, yeah. Listen, I I could go on about Aritzia. You know, fantastic company. Brian Hill, who started the uh, started Aritzia, is is one of the best merchants I've ever met. Last but not least, uh, our friend, he's been on the podcast before, Joe Kudla from Viore, is uh, head and east. He kind of hinted at that in the episode, but it sounds like he has manifested it and making it happen. <laughs> Yeah, a couple of things. Well, first of all, I would encourage. I've I've gotten so many great comments about about Joe's interview, um, just as being really, really insightful. And uh, you know, of course, mm-hmm. a lot of folks mm-hmm. didn't necessarily know the brand, so it was fun to learn. But Joe's a guy who comes from an accounting background, who's now you know created and led this really fast growing uh, brand. But um, folks that know the brand may know that it's got kind of this Southern Cal vibe to it. So the move of opening, actually, they opened a new store in London last month, I believe, and they just opened their largest store ever, 5,000 square foot store in New York. And they've got store um, openings coming to actually the Dallas store, I think is going to open in the next few weeks, uh, Boston and some other international locations. So big move for them. It'll be interesting to see, you know, certainly a great brand, still relatively small, but whether that that Southern California vibe will will translate mm-hmm. to different sorts of geographies. So uh, I think that's that's they're going to be a brand really to watch across the next uh, year or so. All right. Well, let's uh, let's leave it there. Let's uh, hear from our great sponsor, presenting sponsor, Market Dial. Before we get to our fantastic interview, sorry, my fantastic <laughs> interview. <laughs> that, that sounds a bit. Rub it in, Michael. Yeah. <laughs> if Michael Klieger from My Teresa. MarketDial is an easy-to-use testing platform and boldens great decisions, leading to reliable, scalable results. With MarketDial, you can be confident in the outcome of your in-store pilot initiatives before rolling them out across your fleet. In a challenging retail climate of supply chain disruption, labor shortages, and dynamic customer behavior, the need for reliable insights has never been greater. Validate your remarkable ideas with MarketDial's in-store testing solution. The proof is in the testing. Learn more at MarketDial.com. That's MarketDial.com. Michael, welcome to the Remarkable Retail Podcast. How are you doing this afternoon? I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Where are we finding you today? You find me today in Munich, where I haven't been in quite a while because uh, I've gone on the fashion circle, Mm. done the New York fashion week and then Milan and Paris so this is yeah. the second day I'm back. All right, well listen, let's uh, let's jump right in. Let's talk about you. Tell us a bit about yourself, how you got to where you are and and uh, what you do for a living. Half of my career was spent in consulting. Uh worked for McKinsey and then I switched over to the real work and uh, worked in retail. Worked in physical retail but then also worked in digital uh, before joining my Teresa, I worked at eBay, worked at the eBay enterprise division for uh, bringing brands online to eBay in Europe and Asia. And since 2015, 
I am the CEO of MyTheresa. Joined the company in the in the wake of Neiman Marcus acquiring the company from the founders, and I have been mm-hmm. CEO of MyTheresa ever since then. I've interviewed lots of great McKinsey consultants, who some of whom have stayed in McKinsey for their entire careers, but many have moved on. Is was that your plan when you joined consulting? Was it? Or did you have a plan, so to speak, or did did retail, which sometimes has been described as the accidental career, come up as just an opportunity that you couldn't miss? I mean, I worked on retail as I was in McKinsey from the beginning. So I I mean, my very first project back in 92 was for a retailer. Hmm. I never planned to stay so long at McKinsey. I I stayed Hmm. there 12 years. That was not planned. Luckily, I still got out. <laughs> <laughs> well, you made you made it out, and of course, anyone who makes it out of McKinsey's got a got both uh, the opportunity to prove all those great things that they've been telling everybody, but also it's a it's a very different life. Let's talk about my Teresa. Tell us for the listeners who may not uh, know of it, give us a sense of the brand, who's your target customer, the scale, scope, where you operate, and and of course, what makes it remarkable. Happy to do so. You need to stop me if I talk too much about my Teresa because I really like the company. We are an online or digital luxury platform for fashion and lifestyle products. We are really focusing on the high-end luxury part of that business. That means we focus and in luxury shopping, you could broadly differentiate two types, two extreme types of customers. The one is the intermittent customer. They want to own one pair of luxury sneaker or one luxury bag, mm. but that may be the one and only luxury item they ever buy or at least the one item they buy in that year. So maybe they're buying a suit or a, a nice dress for a fundraiser or something. So they, they, they're occasional. Well, shoppers, so n- not even that because, I mean, the, 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 the occasional intermittent, they won't really want that one piece that, that they it's more an investment. So if you buy a luxury bag, if you buy an MS bag, that is your bag for the next X years. Mm -hmm. Um, If you move into ready to wear, that is of course much more fashion. So if you buy a dress, this could be out of season next year. Mm -hmm. Whereas a sneaker, I mean, particularly in accessories, there are many luxury items that what we call are carryover. They are sold by the brands for many seasons on ready-to-wear, most pieces are only sold for that one season and don't come back. And next season, meaning spring, summer, or fall, winter, yeah. there are new items coming. And therefore, the other extreme version of customers are the ones that really live a luxury lifestyle. They are wardrobe buildings builders. Mm-hmm. They buy a lot of ready-to-wear. That's our business. Over 40% of our business is ready-to-wear. And these are, of course, the much bigger spenders the occasional shoppers there are many and many of the big brands build a huge business on selling a lot of accessories to many people but we focus on those that spend a lot buy a lot and 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 the advantage of that is a these are quite lucrative customers because once you acquire them and manage to retain them they come back and back so Mm. on your initial marketing investment you get a high return but also these customers, what they really look for is inspiration. So if you set your eyes on a certain pair of sneaker or if you set your eyes on a, on a, on a particular luxury bag, mm. you will go to the dot-com of that brand. You know you want to have a Saint Laurent bag. You probably go to saintlaurent.fr and purchase it there. 
Right. Our customers are much more occasion driven. So yeah. as you mentioned, I have a gala next week. I need a dress. I want to update my work wardrobe. I have a, a family affair. And so they clearly have a set of brands they like. But if you look for a floral dress, you are still open. You want someone that presents to you floral dresses. And this is where curation is so important. And this is what we do. We have far less brands. We curate. You look for a floral dress. You mm. have a chance to go through 100, 150 dresses of luxury brands. And, and, and that is our core business. And when I joined, my Teresa was a 100 million business. In the meantime, we are a 750 million company. We are, I would say, one if not the only luxury platform that makes money. Mm -hmm. And so it is really the focus on high-end, on only luxury brands, focus on the high-end customer that produces a very unique financial profile. And, and do you consider yourself global? I'm sitting here in Toronto, Canada. Can I order from your brand or, or what's your scale around the world? You can absolutely, and we have a great business in Canada and, and, and very happy clients. It's growing very fast. Last fiscal year, we shipped to 133 countries in the world. Mm, fantastic. Big player. Business, Big 50% of our business, a bit more, sits still in Europe. 25% mm -hmm. sits in Asia, Pacific, 15 in North America. And then there are still many places in the world, particularly the Middle East, where we have significant business. So interesting. Now, you mentioned uh, you were at uh, Fashion Week. Did you happen to catch this uh, this spray-on dress that was on the model uh, Bella Hadid who was getting some uh, some buzz? Did you catch the buzz or catch that event where she uh, they sprayed a dress on and then she walked around in it? What do you, what do you think of that? Great marketing and not a product for me to sell. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a different, that's a, you know, it, it leads me into the discussion around how your business has evolved. You know, basically you touched on at the beginning, uh, part, you're part of the Neiman Marcus group. So uh, over the years that even pre, before you joined, but in the years that you've been a CEO, how, how the business itself evolved in your mind? The business was set up by the founders who operated a classic boutique here in München, in Munich. We still operate that boutique. It still exists. And, and I think it's very important to understand this origin because it defines our DNA. They started online to serve clients. They had clients in Hamburg and said, look, we, we rarely come to Munich. Is there no other way? And so they started the online business in 2006, the boutique they opened in 87. And and then it grew. It grew with customer demand, but they always saw that as an extension of the boutique. And so they really saw it as a continuation of curation, of inspiration, of presenting to your clients things they will like, um, not an endless aisle concept. Mm -hmm. and, and it grew and grew. And they first started with a German, French, Italian website, and then... The business further evolved, and by 2014, the online part was much, much bigger. It was already sort of five times the size of the boutique. Mm. And then in, in, in 2015, with the new ownership, we, of course, said, okay, how, how will we grow this business? And, right. and, and, and there was a debate, 
Shall we stay in Europe? Shall we increase the brand count? Shall we yeah. include also premium and contemporary? And at that time, mm -hmm. we made a very firm decision. No, we stay in high-end luxury. We will grow by serving the same type of customers around the world. And so the decision was not to go broad, but to go global. We added uh, Arabic in 15, Korean in 16, Mandarin in 17, We really try to be much better at, at uh, localizing the offer. We expanded from women's wear to men's wear in, 19, uh, in, in 20. We added kids wear in 19. We have set up offices around the world. We now have offices in New York with a team of shop, personal shoppers, PR, social mm -hmm. events. We have now an office in Shanghai, again, with personal shoppers, PR, social, marketing. So this is, and this is unique about luxury. It is a global market. I mean, a mm -hmm. Gucci, the Honest's bag is a product that is liked, understood, desired across the world. And many other consumer sectors, there are quite huge differences in consumption patterns and in, 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 in behavior. I mean, this is a global product and we go after the global luxury spenders and and so the business evolved i mean obviously with the growth we 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 had to update all the infrastructure be it it offices multiple times we we yeah, i was, we, I, I was going to say it, it, it that's a very important decision to make right are we going to go through breadth or are we going to stay rigorously curated but then go global and and really do global well which is what you're describing right different offices absolutely. and real localization real real focus. Now, around you, the industry itself, what's happening in the industry? Of course, we just went through a couple of years of the COVID era, which, um, you know, suppressed demand for certainly some of the commodities. And, and you know, as you, as you reflect on those years, we're in some kind of post, quasi post COVID era. Did you, did you witness changes in the industry that, that have uh, impacted you? And, and uh, you know, how is, uh, how are you thinking about the customers today? Is there a big bounce back, a kind of a you know, let's get back to it. How, how are you thinking about that? The main impact of the pandemic was an acceleration of things that happened before. Mm, okay. So wh what is the state of the industry? When I joined my Teresa, 4% of personal luxury was sold online. It was slowly growing. That was also why I actually joined the company because I firmly believed luxury would follow the same trend in other categories. Mm -hmm. But the pandemic has, of course, really jumped it. And, and last year, we were at 22% online right. penetration. Researchers you, you, still believe we will reach 30% by 25. But right. the pandemic pushed clients towards online that may, would have, that may only would have joined us in a couple of years. So this is number one. Hmm. Number two, online because of the increase in penetration, was a booming market. Many platforms, many startups, many companies developed nicely. With the pandemic, brands really said, okay, are we sure we want this? Which platforms? And also during the pandemic, as you said, on the one hand, stores were closed, great for digital. But on the other hand, all the occasions for which you yeah. buy luxury were also closed or not existing. So it wasn't like, oh, super time. It was a difficult time. And the second thing that the pandemic is accelerating is 
consolidation. Only a few players that can really add value for customers, be it because of curation, inspiration, be it of being the largest aggregator. So we clearly since, and, and I think at least in the US and West and Europe, we are post-COVID, we have seen real signs of accelerated consolidation in the market. Now, let, let's get to the business model itself. I mean, you are one of the few, Steve and I talk about this often on the podcast, we call it the wobbly unicorn segment, where we look at these uh, startup unicorns that are really struggling. You seem to be, and you mentioned it off the top, the, the growth and, and profitability. What's behind that success? Is it the curation? Is it, is it the focus? And, and what is it in the business model that everyone else seems to be getting wrong that you're getting so right? We're doing well, and we are, we are very proud of it, but we also are quite aware of the shortcomings we still have. So the, a healthy dose of paranoia keeps you going. But <laughs> I think you mentioned already two important words. One is focus. I This is my learning after seeing many, many businesses. You need to focus on things and do them really, really well. And interesting enough, in real-world competition, if you do one or two things really, really well, you can win already and don't even attempt to do 10 things really, really well. Mm -hmm. and what we are trying to do is serve this one customer segment, this one customer segment that is focused on curation, on inspiration, that has a high loyalty. And because of our focus and our dedication, we are the leaders in curated and inspirational luxury shopping. And then the whole mechanics of e-commerce, I mean, as you will know, the biggest expense of e-commerce is online marketing, customer acquisition costs. Mm -hmm. This is a large chunk and, and, and it gets ex more expensive every year to acquire customers. And the main question that we always ask ourselves is not, how much revenue, how much customer growth is, are we acquiring the right customers? And so we work a lot with mm -hmm. AI algorithms to give us a view on future lifetime value of customers. Because if you acquire someone and that customer then stays with you for the next X years, five, six, 10 years, mm. and comes back, then you have a great return on your investment. If you acquire a customer that, that he or she buys one back and is then gone, yeah. you have a revolving door yeah. business concept. And that is almost impossible to make profitable. So the, um, the retail industry, I guess we should say the broader economics are, are changing. I mean, I know uh, reading, I was just interviewing uh, Ira Kalish from Deloitte talking about the global state of economies and Europe may or may not uh, be heading into more difficult times, certainly for a whole bunch of different reasons. Um, the consumer continues to seem to be powering through it, at least your segment. Is that a true statement that the folks that uh, participate in your category are fairly recession-proof to a degree, and, and you're confident that um, you won't be kind of impacted too, too much by any economic headwinds? I think it is fairly true, and we are absolutely confident that we, we will not be impacted at least from what we know today, from all the challenges we already know. I mean, right. it, it's, it's in, in, in terms of numbers, so the overall luxury market is at the moment in, still predicted for next year to grow 5 to 7%. Hmm. 
The online part inside luxury is still predicted to grow 12 to 15%. And we guide our investors that we will grow 16 to 22%. So it's a resilient sector overall. Within this resilient sector, online is growing faster. And within the online market, we are growing faster. And so the 16 to 22% that we put out as our guidance is not on the basis of zeros, it is on the base of a very healthy sector, and our employees, for example, are quite challenged. If you need to spend two thousand euros more on just mm -hmm. energy, that yeah. is for yeah. our teams and our warehouses a huge amount. Mm -hmm. But for many of our customers, two thousand euros is is not a financial problem. Let's uh, shift gears a little bit. Let's talk about sustainability. I, I saw it described on your site, I think, as a journey, not an end state. I mean, in one way, the goods that you sell are inherently sustainable and that they're built to last, right? Your higher-end products. You're not talking fast fashion by any means, even though there's some seasonality to it. Is that the way you perceive of sustainability, or are there particular things that uh, you wanted to call out in terms of that file that you, that you work on that you're proud of? No, we we put out a commitment beginning of the, the beginning of the year. We divided our commitment into four buckets. We actually next week will publish our first ESG report, reporting on progress on the four buckets, and they're good things and and things where we still need to improve a lot. So around product, you you're absolutely right. I mean, we have relatively speaking a good product. Most of our products are manufactured in Europe. Yeah. are manufactured from materials of highest quality, are, are manufactured to last. So many of the aspects of fast fashion, where it is sourced from the other part of the world, is actually more geared towards fast consumption and fast throwing it out. This is not our case. It's a, a word often used in luxury is timeless. So we think yeah. we have a very good product story, and we actually promote actively the the circular economy with luxury we offer our customers the, the special service to sell their products on vestiaire collective because if they don't like them because they're out of season they are still an excellent quality so they are really good things to talk about on the other hand we are a company that is leaving a, a, a large carbon footprint i mean we ship around the world sure shipping means Lorries shipping means airplanes, and so we have commit. We have made a commitment to offset this. We are carbon neutral as of the last fiscal year, but offsetting is 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 of course still that we 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 have a carbon footprint. We actually offer to our customers, in addition to our commitment to offset. Um, in addition, they can also offset. All the offsetting is sitting with gold standard. Hmm. Uh, projects, but still we have commitments to reduce the carbon footprint, commitments to reduce waste. Um, and, and that's a responsibility of the company. And there, of course, it is true. It is a journey. You, you, as a company, yeah. as a business, you do produce a footprint and you try to mitigate it, but you will always do so. You touched on, uh, which gives me a nice segue to my next, next question, talking about the resale market. So you touched on, you know, a service that you, uh, would reach out to your customers who maybe got a, maybe a little bored of their product. It's still in wonderful shape. How do you, how do you see the resale market? Is it a competitor? It's a buzzy trend for sure. Is it, 
or is it a serious and lasting element of the luxury business or is it is it de minimis it is is it ancillary do you i mean the folks who participate in it say it's going to be huge but what's your perspective i mean I think this is what do you mean by huge? I mean the the the, the, the global luxury market, yeah. uh, just in fashion and and fashion accessories is is a market of three hundred fifty three hundred sixty billion euros a year. Mm-hmm. So if part of that also sits in in circular in recycling and resale, it is still a significant, mm-hmm. very significant business. My fundamental view is it is part of serving the customer i don't think you should view the world and business models in this is resale this is first hand second hand mm. the customer is who we serve and 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 we have customers that buy luxury and you still find them buying fast fashion and you still find them buying and reselling on on uh on resale platforms. The, mm. the world is multifaceted and, and what the digital world is doing, it gives more and more power to the consumer. So I think if, if there's a consumer demand, it's not good advice to resist it. It is much better advice to embrace it. We decided to embrace it with a partnership with Wistier. Right. Some brands are now also actively in resale. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Will it be bigger than the real luxury market, if real means firsthand, no, I don't think so. Well, let's let's turn our minds. The last question: turn our minds to um, what's important going forward in luxury fashion. If it's not spray-on dresses, um, <laughs> <laughs> how do you? Uh, you know, you've you've just come out of New York. You're, you've got your hand on the pulse of leading edge. You're dealing with the the best of the best. You both have uh, a bespoke customer, and you've got fantastic vendors uh how are you how are you thinking about luxury fashion and then retail in general how do you, what's your what's your prognosis the, the days and times are quite risky to make any <laughs> prognosis <laughs> or or forecast you, you may get it wrong but That's i fair. would call out some fundamentals number one luxury is pure emotions the reason people buy luxury because they don't need it but they want it it's a desire and the emotions driving those, this desire can be quite different. I mean, pride, uh, feeling of success, feeling of beauty. Accomplishment. But we need always to remind ourselves in this industry, we serve an emotional need. And therefore, we need to approach this business. We need to make our customers feel good about their purchases. If they don't feel good about their purchase, we deprive them of their emotional benefit and therefore stores online again this is business models i can tell you there are fantastic stores out there you go in you have a great feeling you're it's delightful you provide an experience they will survive there are many stores unfortunately that don't do that mm. but it's the same on digital i mean just because you have a website that doesn't mean the customer has a great experience that doesn't mean the customer gets the emotional benefits that they're looking for. So the, the, the divide in the industry is not bricks versus online. It's not, it's not uh, marketplace versus uh, 1P, 2P, 3P, whatever. It is really the divide is good or not good for the customer. And therefore, the fundamental is really focus on that as a business. Mm-hmm. Listen to your customers. We do customer focus groups regularly. I read the net promoter score comments every week. If you do that, 
you will do well, even though the world will probably look again quite different in five years than what we see today. Well, it's a remarkable story, and uh, I guess my last question is: is what's next? You've got, you've got a fast-moving business. You've you've already articulated plans for growth that uh, that go beyond the growth of the industry. Anything you wanted to call out as in what you're uh, particularly focused on for next year that you wanted folks to hear about? I mean, there are two regions we focus on, which is the U.S. We, mm-hmm. we think we have many more opportunities there to grow, to make us known, to increase brand, avail- uh, brand awareness, the same as for Asia. Second thing I want to call out, we will continue to add categories that we feel are, are relevant to our customers. So we launched in May home and lifestyle products. There will more mm-hmm. will, will be more products for the luxury customer, even outside of fashion, coming. And the third one, we are constantly thinking about services, services for our top customers. Mm. Money can buy experiences that go beyond buying products, meet the designers, be at the shows, Mm. have virtual experiences. I think we are about inspiration, shopping, and experiences. That's our core. And uh, we will try very hard to please as many customers as we can going forward. Well, Michael, it's a it's a fantastic story, and I want to thank you for joining us on the Remarkable Retail Podcast and sharing your journey with us. Uh, I know I learned a lot, and I, I um, applaud, congratulate you and the team on all the success, and I wish you much continued success, and hopefully maybe we'll run across each other in person at, uh, at an event soon and, and have a, a chat together. So until then, uh, thanks again for joining me on the Remarkable Retail Podcast, and I wish you a great rest of your evening. Thank you very much. And remember, you can shop with us in Toronto. (laughs) I'll spread the word. (laughs) If you like what you heard, please follow us on Apple, Spotify, your favorite podcast platform, so you can catch up with all our great interviews, like our discussion with Seth Godin on what retailers can actually do to fight climate change. New episodes of Season 5, presented by Marketile, will show up each and every week. And be sure and tell your friends and colleagues in the retail industry all about us. And I'm Steve Dennis author of the best-selling book, Remarkable Retail, How to Win and Keep Customers in the Age of Disruption. You can learn more about me, my consulting, and keynote speaking at stephenpdennis.com. And I'm Michael LeBlanc, consumer retail growth consultant, keynote speaker, and producer and host of a series of retail trade podcasts, including this one, plus the host of the popular YouTube cooking show, Last Request Barbecue. You can learn even more about me on LinkedIn or melebla.co. Safe travels, everyone.